Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. That's where we will be this morning for most part of it. And we, um, uh, this morning at the end of the service, we're going to be filling out, if you haven't already filled out one, I'm going to ask you to fill out this commitment card, this exceedingly abundant commitment card. And so if you didn't get one, um, you could slip up and walk out there and say, hey, you forgot me. And... um, but grab one of those and love for you to. And if you've already filled it out and uh, you're sitting there this morning, you think, man, I think I'm going to change that number um, up. You, you, uh, and you don't have a pen. Just tap somebody sitting next to you, say, I, I need to borrow a pen. Uh, um, and then give it to them and say, you, you should change your number too. So, so, something like that. If you're visiting with us, we're at the end of a series that we're doing called Living Generously. It's one of the four anchors of our vision statement to to grow communities, build leaders, and live generously. And we've been talking about that in light of our um, desire to raise $6 million in celebration of our 40 years of ministry and looking forward to the next 40 years of ministry. And we have these booklets, and we've talked about what we'll do with them, and some of that information is in those booklets. And so, I'll... uh, remind you of it at the end. But I want to begin by reading a couple of paragraphs out of a book that um, I've read this year. Uh, It's a great one by Christian Smith. It's called The Paradox of Generosity. The subtitle is Giving We Receive, Grasping We Lose. Here's what he says. uh, To those who give, or those who give, receive back in turn. By spending ourselves for others' well-being, we enhance our own standing. In letting go of some of what we own, we better secure our own lives. By giving ourselves away, we ourselves move toward flourishing. This is not only a philosophical or religious teaching, it's a sociological fact. The generosity paradox can also be stated in the negative. But by grasping on to what we currently have, we we lose out on better goods that we might have gained. In holding on uh, to what we possess, we diminish its long-term value to us. But always protecting our future against uncertainties and misfortunes, we're affected in ways that make us more anxious about uncertainties and vulnerable to future misfortunes. In short, by failing to care for others, we do not properly properly take care of ourselves. It is no coincidence that the word miser is etymologically related to the word miserable. He's a sociologist, and he did studies, and some of them were church people, a lot of them weren't church people, and looked at the effects of generosity and came to the Truth, generosity truly is this paradox. And it's a paradox that for our good, he says, we should embrace. So this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to I try to, the very best I can, get through four truths about generosity this morning. That's ambitious. It's amb- I'm looking at my notes, super ambitious. Might only get three of them, all right? And I'll send the third one, fourth one out in email or something. But go to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8. Now, I want to say the very first truth 
about generosity is that generous lives are an overflow of God's grace. Generous lives are an overflow of God's grace. Look at what he says, beginning in verse 1, he says, we want you to know, brothers or brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Little context, Paul, uh, there, there was a famine that was prophesied that was coming to Jerusalem. It was realized there was famine. Um, the Christians found themselves in places of being very poor. They were marginalized in the community. So, not only did the Romans not want anything to do with them, but their fellow Jews didn't want anything to do with them. And so, they weren't being given work, and they weren't being traded with or bartered with anymore. And so, poverty began to take over in the church, and ground zero was Jerusalem, and it affected all the other churches as well. And so, Paul uh, is led by the Spirit to begin to raise money for the, the Jerusalem project, for, for this money that's going to go to Jerusalem and also help out uh, the churches. And, and this Macedonia that he speaks of is Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And in these two chapters, chapters 8 and 9, he's going to use the word grace 10 times in these two chapters. And what he's describing here, you see, is the grace of God. And so whatever else he's saying in these two chapters. He's talking about the grace of God. Grace is God's unconditional benevolence towards us. His unconditional love, to, His unconditional care for us. And so, it's worth noting what Paul says about grace. It's literally, it's a, it's a gift. It, it, and a gift, it, it costs you something, something real without expectation of reciprocity, or that, that's not a gift, that's a payment, that's a, that's a bribe. Webster says it's undeserved kindness. So, Paul's saying, he said, hey, I want to tell you about God's grace. That's what I want to tell you about. And to tell you about it, let me tell you a story. And I'm going to tell you a story about the Macedonian churches. And what you're going to hear is God's Grace. I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, one of the things that he's going to say is God's grace received is most fully enjoyed when it's given. In his grace, God's constantly looking for ways to bless us. He's incredibly creative in how he blesses us. One of the graces that he's placed in our life is giving. Grace. It's one of the graces that God's placed in our life. And this is how it's described. Uh, the, the grace that God gave them. Giving is a gracious gift that God gives to us because he knows that the practice of it, the, the the blessings that they just pour into our lives. It is a way that he blesses us. Look at verse 2. It says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance and joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed 
and a wealth of generosity on their part. This church he's talking about in Macedonia is probably the Philippian church, although it probably includes all of them, but the Philippian church is ground zero. They were an extremely poor church. He goes out of his way to communicate that. The affliction, literally, it means to be crushed by life. When everything presses in, you know, and you say, I I can hardly breathe. that's, That's what he means. But even in their poverty, they're very generous. He goes on for, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. So, so God's grace is received most fully, or it's enjoyed most fully when it's given. So, so how do you meet with the most difficult circumstances in life, when the most difficult circumstances come to you and they press in, how do you, how do you meet those in life and experience joy? Paul's saying here for the Macedonians, for the Philippians, joy comes at the intersection of grace giving, given to us, and the grace of giving. Here's what commentators say about that phrase, of their own accord, or entirely on their own. They gave of their own accord, they gave entirely of their own. The Apostle Paul, they, they believed he, he was going to the wealthy churches to ask for help to the, for the poor churches. And so apparently, he didn't go to the Macedonian church because they're so poor that he probably saw them as potential recipients of this, uh, of this offering. But apparently, someone in the Macedonian church heard that Paul was taking up this offering, and then he looked around and said, wait a minute, why didn't he ask us? Wait a minute, he's, he's jipping us here. We're, we're getting left out. And so, look at their response. He, he says, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. The word favor, maybe yours says privilege. That word is grace. They they begged for us or with us for for grace in the sharing of the saints. Now, now, come to him and say, wait a minute, Paul, there's an opportunity and we we want in. We know the enormous blessing that comes with this. And this is one of the ways that God graces us. And he goes on, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So so first to the Lord, then by the will of God to us. It's It's a beautiful picture of this thing we've been talking about the last four weeks of this new covenant Giving, I give myself first to the Lord. Jesus, I'm yours. What what do you want to do with me? Jesus, how do you want to express yourself through me today? Well, what do you want me to give? How much do you want me to give? Jesus, I'm available to you. And then two, that they followed through and they gave what the Spirit led them to do. That's what Paul's saying. Which brings me to the second thing. Not only is generosity this overflow of God's grace in our life, generosity is not a matter of law. It's a matter of 
love. So it's not how much you give. It's why you give, why you're generous. That, that's the heart of the matter. So apparently, the, the Corinthian church, they got the first part just fine. Lord, Lord, what do you want, want me to do? But they didn't get the second part. They didn't follow through. So Paul challenges them. Look at verse 6. He says, so accordingly, we urged Titus that as he, had, um, as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. So, so Paul goes over and over and over again using the word grace to remind us this is an act of grace. But as you excel in everything, he says, verse 7, but as you excel in everything, in, in faith, in speech, in knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you see that you excel in this act of grace also this act of grace it's not an obligation of giving it's not expectation it's not a requirement of giving it's not even a percentage of giving it's in this grace of giving. Did this unconditional giving born out of authentic love, expecting nothing in return, just like God gives to us grace. And it's the result. Of the, when the Holy Spirit does this through us, and we get to enjoy the, the privilege, the the grace of giving. That's why he says in verse 8, look at this. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is generous, is genuine. Generosity is not commanded by God. There's no law of generosity which requires an obedience. So it's merely a law that's followed. Then by definition, it is not generosity. If it's something to just do to check off your list, if it's something you do because you're guilty or you feel shame, that's not generosity. Paul knows generosity cannot be extracted from Christians. At the point it is, it ceases to be generosity. God's not trying to pry anything out of your hand. This is not a Christian tax Paul's trying to extract. Instead, he says, but to prove by the earnestness of others, the Macedonians in this case, that your love is also genuine. What's an overflowing of God's grace, generosity is. It's not law. Generosity is not law. It's, it's an overflow of love. And I want to show you a third thing, and that is that generosity is connected to eternity. And I want to pick up with the Macedonian church to do that. And I, I don't have the scriptures up here. You'll have to turn in your Bible if you've got it or flip or, you know, touch the screen or whatever you do. But the end of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, I'm going to start in verse 14. And so if you were to ask somebody, you know, who, who's read the Bible a few times what Philippians is about, why, so why did he write Philippians? You might hear, well, it's about joy. And that certainly would be a secondary theme of Philippians, absolutely. He talks about joy in there more than probably any other uh, book that he, that he writes. Um, 
But the original purpose for why Paul writes to the Philippian church is that he's thanking them for supporting him financially. It's a, it's a thank you note, if you will. And so in this section right here at the end, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 4, it's where Paul just comes right out and says it. He says, I want to thank you for su- supporting me financially. And his words are stunning. L- listen to this, verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. That word share is a partnership, to, to come alongside me, my trouble. It, it's a way that he describes his ministry. It was hard work. And he goes on, and you Philippians, uh, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So here's what Paul's saying. Starts out in his missionary journey, all the churches that he's planted, of all the people that he's discipled, of, of all the groups that he's left scattered all over Asia Minor. There was no other church that supported him. Only Philippi supported him financially. That's stunning, isn't it? So you look at this missionary journey, it's after he leaves Philippi and all the places that he went and this incredible impact that Christ had through him in all of these places. And you realize it wouldn't have happened if that one little church hadn't supported him financially. He goes on, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And and it's interesting, you read in Acts, and he goes to Thessalonica right after Philippi, so he plants a church, disciples him a little bit, leaves, and even though they're baby believers, they couldn't wait to give. They experienced God's grace. They couldn't wait to spread God's grace to others. I think it's one of the biggest mindsets that we need to flip around. We think of giving or stewardship that this is like, you know, varsity Christianity. But the reality is that this is something right there at the beginning. It's right, I mean, it's fundamental. It's, it's right at the foundation of what it means to be a believer and how we live out our, 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 our faith in Christ. So, here it is. He goes on, verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift. Not that I'm asking for more money. That's what he's saying. But I seek the fruit that increases to your account. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent me. Now, I want to come back to 17 in a second. But this verse 18, Paul's saying, look, I'm I'm good. You stop giving now. Be like all our missionaries calling us up at Bethel and saying, hey, whoa, whoa, stop, don't send us any more money. We're covered. Redirect the funds. We're good. Paul's saying this church supported him so magnificently. He said, hey, I'm, I'm covered. And he describes the gifts in verse 18 as a fragrant offering and an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. This is spiritual terminology. And he's applying this language to the physical act of giving. Giving is a spiritual act. It's it's an act of worship. So, so let me me stop right here for for one second. 
And say, so if you're sitting here this morning and you feel like the walls are closing in on you, you know, like this is tremendous pressure, I, I just want to say, that's not Paul's heart. It's not. It's, it's not my heart this morning. But Paul isn't saying, you know, the, 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 all these things that he said. Not because the church needs money. He's saying it because the heart needs a reminder. But please hear me. Paul wants every one of us to give. Why? Because he wants us constantly reminded of all the truths that we've been learning about the joy and the grace of giving. That Every time I make an offering or write a check, I, I'm reminded that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Every time I offer a sacrifice, I'm reminded where my treasure is, there my heart is also. Yes, Jesus is a treasure to be with you. I want my heart with you. Every time I'm giving myself, I'm reminded that stewardship is not me giving a portion of what I own. But it's God including us, God giving us a part of what he's doing. Oh, yeah, I'm a part of something bigger than just me and my family. It's bigger. Every time I give, it's reminded me that that stewardship's 100% of what I have. It's all God's, and he's entrusted it to me to, to funnel it through me for his kingdom purposes, all of it. Every time I'm reminded, it's not mine. It's his. It's not mine. It's, it's his. It's his. I'm, res- I'm reminded I cannot serve both God and money. So I choose you, Jesus. And he goes on in, in verse 19, my God will supply all your needs. And here's the fear. You know, if I step out in faith and give all that the Spirit's leading me to give. My question is, how, how am I going to pay for it? You know, whatever it is, fill in the blank. How am I going to take care of that? And the answer is verse 19, and, and my God will supply all your needs. But you may be saying, well, okay, but listen, I have a lot of needs. I wonder if God's resources are really going to be able to cover it. That's why it goes on. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Yes, my friend, he's got it covered. There's no shortage of resources available to him. Now, let me get to the point I'm wanting to make. It, uh, generosity has eternal consequences. Look, look back at verse 17 if you got your Bibles there. He says, not that I seek the gift. It's not, it's not that I'm trying to get money out of you. He says, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. That's the way that ESV puts it. The NIV says that, that more would be credited to your account. The Net Bible says that the credit that abounds would abound to your account. Now, Paul, he doesn't expound on this here, okay? He doesn't tell us exactly what he's meaning, but he's leading us to believe that he's happy that they're giving, not because his needs are now being met, that that's a secondary result. He's really happy because in their giving, in some way, 
some spiritual way. What they give here is supernaturally or spiritually credited to them there. And apparently, when we stand before Christ at the judgment seat, we'll find out what all that means. It's an eternal blessing that we don't fully understand until we're face to face with Jesus. But that by faith, we believe there's a, a blessing. If you remember last week, I mean, we, we looked at the view of money, wealthy, wealth, riches, stuff we have, how we view it. We looked at the parable of talents, and the guy who had one talent, and his response to the master was fear. And we said, how, how, how we view stuff is a reflection of our view of God. If our stuff is something to be held on to and, and buried and hoarded, and, uh, or it's the source of our security and our identity, as in the case of the rich young ruler, or, or pride, if money or our stuff is, in other words, is our hope and our assurance, because we can see it, we can count it, then our faith's in the wrong place, our heart's in the wrong place. If our heart treasures the stuff we have, our life follows. Our view of God follows. We've allowed money to occupy the place in our life, the throne in our life, the place that was meant for God. And Jesus knows this, and that's why he talks about money more than any other topic. It's the primary competitor for our heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The degree to which we cling to stuff here on earth that's perishable and will pass away and where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, then we're missing out on the grace and the blessing Paul so desires for these Philippian friends and that God desires for us. It's eternal blessing. The more that's credited to your account, your eternal account, your eternal blessing from the eternal and gracious God. Generosity has eternal consequences. Well, fourth, generosity starts with what you believe. Go, go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'll pick up in verse 10. He, so, where we left off, so he's encouraged them to give, and so apparently they, they didn't do it. They didn't follow through with what they said they were going to do. And so he says, okay, you said you would, but, but you didn't. So he has to give them a little more practical teaching about giving. And he says, so in this matter, uh, verse 10, and in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Notice that he says, out of what you have. Maybe yours says, according to your means. Paul's 
thoroughly consistent here. In verse 12, he continues, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. How much should I give Paul? Maybe you've had that conversation with your spouse this week. Leslie and I did. How much should we give? Here's what Paul says. Well, how much do you have? Let's start there. And then we're going to give according to what we have. Uh, So verse 13, for I did not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness. Paul's saying, don't give in such a way that it burdens you. Don't give in such a way that now you become poor and other people need to help you out. There's wisdom to this. I don't want you to give in such a way that makes you hard-pressed, burdens the word, but as a matter of fairness so that there might be equality. He goes on, verse 14, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness or equality. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. There in verse 15, you could underline that verse. He's quoting Scripture there. It comes from Exodus 16. And Paul, what he's giving is a general biblical principle for Christian giving. In the church, no one will get too rich, no one will be too poor. It's something that's going to be unique about the community of faith. No one gets too rich. No one becomes too poor. No no one will have too much left over. There won't be anyone that lacks. So those with a lot, give a lot. Those with less, they'll give, but they'll give less. And in it, all the needs are taken care of. Go over to chapter 9. Let's skip forward and pick up in verse 6. Paul's going to conclude his thoughts there. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. So much here. I've got to get on with it. The point is this, he says in verse 6 of chapter 9. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully, or that word is generously, will also reap bountifully. So the picture is you throwing seeds out into a field, and you throw, you know, five or six seeds out into the field, and you get five or six plants that, that come up. If you throw a thousand seeds out in the field, well, you get more than five or six plants. The more you sow, the more you reap. The less you sow, the less you reap. He's talking about giving. And then with that in mind, he goes on and he says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Now, he's assuming that we've made a decision. We've sat down with our spouse or a family, if that's appropriate, and we've made a decision, and this is the way that we're going to do it, and, and this is what the Spirit's led us to do. 
And so this is what we're going to do. We've decided it. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Here's what Paul's saying. If you feel pressured to give, don't give. If you feel your arm being twisted, don't. Don't give. If you're sitting here thinking, when is this generosity series over? (laughs) Don't give. Seriously, it's okay. Because if that's where you're giving from, then you don't get it. You don't get the grace part of it yet. The idea that you're so overwhelmed with who Jesus is and he's so powerfully living his life through you as the great giver. He can't wait to give through you. And you're along for the ride. If you're there, give. He says you'll be a cheerful giver. God loves that. In fact, the word for cheerful is hilarious. Literally, that's what it is in the Greek. All right, verse 8. And God's able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things... At all times, you may abound in every good work. But Paul's, what he's addressing here is, yeah, well, if I give the way the Spirit's leading me to, then I might not be able to cover my needs. And he says, listen, I've got that. Don't worry about it. If he's leading you, you can trust him to take care of it. His grace will abound and your needs will be met. Christ does this. And then in verse 9, he says, as it is written, and he's going to quote from Psalm 112, he has distributed freely. He's given, he's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Jesus, the one who does this through us. And then he goes on. <coughs> he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, and then you could underline this, will supply And multiply your seed for sowing. And increase the harvest of your righteousness. Your giving makes a difference in the kingdom. That's what he's saying here. And it's so unbelievably humbling that he would would use this giving that he does through us to enlarge his kingdom. Verse 11, you will be enriched, literally made rich in every way to be generous in every way. Some commentators want to say, do this and say, well, he means enriched spiritually, but, but that's not what he says. He says enriched in every way. Literally, in every way, for every generosity, or he'll always make you rich enough to be generous at all times. In other words, you can't outgive God. You can't. He'll continue to pour into you. And why would he do that? Because he says in the rest of verse 11, to be generous in every way. 
or on every occasion, every opportunity that the Spirit prompts you to be generous, you, you can say yes. And why? Because He's pouring into you. That which will, uh, which will through, per, through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Ultimately, our giving brings thanks to God, brings praise to God. For the ministry of this service, verse 12, is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanks to God. But by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you, because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. The surpassing grace of God. 8.1, I want you to know about the grace of God that's been given. What was that grace? The grace of being able to give. Now he calls it because of the surpassing grace of God given upon you. And then he says, closes it out in 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Who's his inexpressible gift? It's Jesus. At the end of the passage, he reminds us, all of us, that God in his character, the the giver, gave us the greatest gift he could ever give, the gift of his son. And now that son, his son, lives in us. The giver lives in us. And when we surrender to him, he gives through us. It's what it means to be part of the family of God. It's natural for us to live that way. I'm thankful when needs like this come along. Said last week, it gives us an opportunity to enter in, to tangibly participate with what God's doing, just like what Paul's called these Corinthians to. So I shared some reasons last week why I think you should fill out a a card, very practical reasons. Um, So I'm going to give... Those, again, I'll give you two more this morning on top of that. They're not not original with me. I said that, but they apply to all of us. The biblical reason why you should fill out a card this morning, why you should write your name there, name and phone number and email. I I told you nobody's going to see this, but our financial coordinator and our Executive pastor, I, I'll never know what you write there. But the campus you're at, whether you're a regular giver or new giver, over the next two years, I commit to giving, uh, commit to a generosity over and above what I'm already doing. And you can put that there and how, how you want to do it. Please do that today. Here's one of the reasons. It's a biblical reason to do it. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his firstborn, 
first fruit, highest and best. Because He gave, we give. It's one of the characteristics of God Himself. That's a biblical reason. Plus all we've talked about over the last four weeks. It's exceedingly abundant God. That's why we give. You'll fill it out. There's a black box out there you can put it in. You can go online. You can do it on the app. Or no, just the website. Just go to Bethelbible.com. Here's a cultural reason. It's an antidote to our society. We live in an age where very few people want to be committed to anything. I told you this last week. Committed to a job or a marriage. We write commitment cards and that swims against the current of consumer religion. I mean, so to do that, it's an unselfish decision. It's this line we draw in the sand. I think it's a powerful line, a personal line to say, I'm committed to this. Here's a practical reason. I didn't give it to you last week. Here's here's a new one for this week. It defines what can be counted on. This is a practical reason. Our leaders need clear information to make good decisions. You help us to know how to plan when you tell us what you plan to give. In Luke 14, for, who, for which of you intending to build a tower doesn't sit down first and count the cost whether he has enough to finish? We want to know if we have enough to finish. It's very practical. It's super helpful to us. Here's a personal reason. So biblical reason, cultural reason, practical reason, personal reason. Some of you are like, okay, just get on with it. I'll fill out the card. Two more, we'll go. We're singing and we'll go. If you don't have a pen, just tap somebody on the shoulder. On your, You're looking at me like, when do we do it? You can do it now. Tune me out, all right? I'm going to pray in a second. It produces spiritual growth. Commitment always builds character, and that's what we want for you as your spiritual leaders. The written commitment, like a, it's between you and God. It's not a contractual pledge to our church. It's not a blood oath. You're letting us know what you commit to God to give so we can plan well. If there's a sense of accountability that comes from sharing that, we think that's a good thing for you. But we're not going to pressure you or make a demand on this. We're not going to send you a late notice. Finally, inspirational reason. Make your life count. You get to be a part of something bigger, greater than yourself. Each of us invests in something. What are you invested in? You get to be a part of a church that tackles a big vision, and we get to do that together. Todd, if you come up, we're going to sing. I'm going to pray, and then we'll sing. And if you've got any questions about the cards, there's some folks out there um, that can help you answer. Chad, look for Chad out there, and um, we'll have some elders and deacons. There's a, it's like a black box on a little stand. It's pretty easy. You just drop it in there. It's locked, so once you drop it in there, you can't get it back. <laughs> Let me pray.
Father, thanks for the morning that we've had, for the truth of your word. Father, for these four weeks, to step back for just a moment before we start our study in Joshua, and to remember the 40 years of this church's ministry, and to give you thanks for that, and to look back and see how you have exceedingly, abundantly accomplished far more than we could have asked or even imagined that you would. And so, Father, it's with that same expectation. We look forward to the next 40 years. We look forward to the next year that you are about, still about, because it's your character exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. And, Father, the grace that you've given to us to Invite us to be a part of what you're doing. So I pray you'd challenge us. Pray you wouldn't leave us anything but unsettled until we settle this with you. We ask this the only way we can in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.